We've been in a series on the book of Ephesians for the last couple of months. We're going to finish up chapter 2 today. It's right before the end of the year. It's great. It's perfect. And we're just the last three verses of chapter 2. I'm going to read our scripture for this morning. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. This is the word of God. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the, the life that you bring us through your word, that you are revealing to us your very character. God, as Becky said, we are asking for you to hear us, and you always do. But now that we would, now we ask that we would listen that we would listen, that we would heed your voice, and that we would follow you. That we would follow you as individuals in this life. But that we would also follow you as members of the community, household, church. And that is what you have called us to, and now we need your help to let it sink in. May the penny drop a little bit farther this morning. We ask this by your grace. Amen. So I do think it would have been an amazing time in that early church, the church coming together those first few decades. And if you remember from last week, what we talked about is two different groups of people coming together, right? The Jews and the Gentiles. And it would have been an astounding thing. They were not coming together for some special project. They weren't linking arm in arm for something that they could, some action they could, could, could do and then finish and then be done with. No, they were coming together forever. Coming together as the church, as the community of God in Christ to go on, not just on, in the earthly life, but on into eternity. And it would have been amazing to see that. But I also think that it would have been painful. I think it would have been painful to endure that, maybe even to see it. Paul is not writing this letter to the Ephesians in a vacuum. He's not just saying, oh, I think I'm going to talk about this today. He is writing to address an issue, isn't he? He's always doing that. And I think the issue was clear enough that the Gentiles were having a hard time assimilating. And that just means fitting in. They were outsiders. No matter what people told them, they were coming into a new faith, one that found its ground not in their own religion, but in Judaism. And so there would have been racism, segregation, infighting. That would not have been uncommon at the time. So Gentiles are coming in and they're feeling at some level like outsiders, some more, some less. And Paul is addressing that. Now, what's interesting is that Paul doesn't say, yeah, that's a, a problem that you've got to fix. You've got to resolve this socially. You've got to learn how to live together. 
He says, you don't understand. Your problem is not your race or your language. Your problem is far deeper than you ever realized. Your problem is hopelessness. It was hopelessness. Ephesians 2.12 says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He's reminding them. He's asking them to remind themselves. They at one time in their lives did not have any hope. They did not have God. Why? Because they were aliens and strangers. Aliens and strangers. Now, usually when we talk about stuff like that, when we use that language, aliens and strangers, what are we referring to? Well, we're referring usually to a a language barrier. Or a physical barrier, like a country barrier. You are an alien when you are in a land that you are far from, that's far from your home. When you're in a land, in a place where they do not speak your language. And if you've ever been abroad in a place that doesn't speak your language, you know that it's very disconcerting. I'm going to say more about that later. But the Gentiles were not in a different land, were they? They hadn't moved anywhere. They were living in the same place. They didn't even speak a different language, not really. So what was their problem? Paul says their problem was spiritual. Spiritual alienation. They were spiritual strangers. Now he does not say this again in a vacuum. This goes on past these pages, transcendently out in history, in time, to us. And this is our problem as well. Spiritual alienation. Maybe you could call it something different. Spiritual homelessness. Spiritual homelessness. You are living. You have a house. You have a career. You have a family. But there are times in our lives where that feeling comes over us. It washes over us. We are not home. We are not home. Sarah Silverman is a comedian. Maybe you know her. She's very successful, but her life was not always successful. Early in her teens, she experienced tremendous depression and anxiety. Her first year in high school, she missed the first three months because she couldn't handle it personally, psychologically. But when she speaks, I think she's speaking to a much deeper problem, the one that Paul is getting at. Listen to her. She says, my stepfather, John O'Hara, was the goodest man there was. He was not a man of many words, but of carefully chosen ones. He was the one parent who didn't try to fix me. One night I sat on his lap in his chair by the wood stove, sobbing. He just held me quietly and then asked only, what does it feel like? It was the first time I was prompted to articulate it. I thought about it, then said, I feel homesick. That feels like the most accurate description. Even today, I felt homesick, but I was home. Homesick, but at home, what she was experiencing very personally, Paul says, is what affects the whole human Race, we are spiritually homeless, adrift, lost, alienated, strangers in a land that we call home. And so Paul is addressing that. He wants to give them an antidote 
Now, of course, the overriding, overarching antidote is God himself. They need the Lord. They are spiritually, spiritually alienated from God, and so they need Christ to bring them back, as Becky said, to cross that cavern over the cross. But what's amazing is that Paul does not stop there. He adds this second component that we cannot forget. It is vitally important to us today to meet our deepest spiritual needs. We need the church. We need the church. In other words, we need each other. Paul says in verse 19, what does he say? So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are, and I stop there. He is going to describe something. He's going to lay it out. What is it? What is the church that it can cure our deepest longings, can help bind up what is broken, can make us not feel alienated, not feel like strangers in our land, but secure? Really what the question we're asking is this. What are we? What are we as the church? Three points this morning. We are one, the people of God, Two, the family of God. And three, the temple of God. We are the people, the family, and the temple of God. Very simple this morning. One, we are the people of God. What does Ephesians 2.19 say? We can read a little bit longer this time. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Okay, stop there. You are fellow citizens with the saints. So Paul very clearly is talking about citizenship in the kingdom of God. He is talking about a people coming together, united in the spiritual kingdom of the Lord. And if you are part of this kingdom, it's not the earthly kingdom, it's a, coming, it's a kingdom that's coming to this earth. It's being spread throughout the, the universe. If you are part of that kingdom, then you have lots of rights and responsibilities like you, would, like you do as an American citizen or at that time as a Roman citizen. When you become a Christian, you are entering into a new society, a new kingdom. You are essentially becoming a new people, taking on a new identity. You identify now as a Christian, as part of that kingdom. Who are you? I am a citizen in the kingdom of God. And so Paul's point very simply is, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are now citizens of God. You are the people of God. And that is a good feeling. That is a freeing, grounding, joyous thing to be part of the people of God, to be citizens in his kingdom, the everlasting kingdom. So my wife and I took a trip to Europe right after I graduated seminary for three weeks on our own from Germany down into Italy, and then we took a train back up into France, and then we ended back up in Germany. It was three weeks. It was amazing. And we went on our own. We didn't go with a tour group. We didn't have any translators were with us. No translators were with us. And we loved it. We loved every second of it. Sort of. There was one part that was, was difficult, that was challenging. And if you've ever been abroad, you know what, what it is like to travel abroad. When you do not speak the language, it is difficult. It's actually pretty exhausting. By the time we reached Rome, we kind of just holed up in our little, little hotel and didn't come out. We were tired. 
And this was really, this really felt terrible. That whole not speaking the language thing was really made to feel terrible when we were on a train one day. We were going out to Pisa. I can't remember which day that was. We were out to Pisa where the leaning tower is. It's not as great as you think it is. Now, we don't speak Italian, barely any Italian. And so we would have to, to get around, we would have to find people that spoke the same language that we did, spoke Eng- at least a little bit of English. And so we're sitting on the train and we need, to, they need some answer to some question. And there were a few other people sitting at this table on the train with us. And so we said, do you speak English? And one of the people did and we asked our question and they answered us. But then they turned away from us and they said something in Italian to the rest of the people sitting there and they started to laugh. Oh, no. And my wife, who was not one to back down from a fight, she said, what did he just say? I'm like, oh, we're doing that today. Okay. (laughs) And someone said, they translated for them. They they said, well, he said, isn't it nice that Americans come here to Italy and then make us speak English? Ouch. I had never felt like such a... A foreigner. We flew back into the States. We flew into Maryland. I will never forget going up to that rental car company. And I was mentally ready, I think, to hear broken English again or none at all, to struggle to communicate what I needed to, to feel again like a foreigner. And then she spoke perfect English back to me, and I could have kissed her. We our home, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. It may not feel like it. It may not seem like it, but if you are in the church, if you are in Christ, you are now citizens together in him by virtue of his life and death and resurrection. You are now members of a new community. You are citizens of a different kingdom, a spiritual kingdom. You may not speak the same language. You may not have the same nationality. You may have nothing else in common, but you are now citizens together. You are part of God's eternal people. It is as though you always belonged. It is as though you were born into this citizenship. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, we no longer live on our passport, but we really have our birth certificates. We really do belong. We are free. We are secure. My first trip to mission trip into Mexico was the first time I felt like a foreigner in a distant land. Everything about that experience was foreign to me. I was 20. I couldn't speak the language. The culture was so different. And then we went to this massive worship service. A Christian church was gathering And I was worried, like, am I going to be able to understand it? How am I going to contribute? And so I grabbed one of our translators and I said, translate what the song is going to say. And then the music started. And instantly, I recognized the song. They weren't singing in English, but I could translate it in my head. I knew what that song was. And right then, as I'm singing out with a thousand other Mexican people, Mexican Christians, This wave of emotions rolled over me, washed over me. I sang and I looked around. I was thousands of miles away from home. I did not speak the language, but I was free. I was secure. 
happy as I had ever been because I was with my people, my fellow citizens. We are not spiritually homeless in the church. We are members, citizens of the kingdom. We are the people of God. Do you believe that? Two, the family of God. The family of God. So Paul continues, verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So the first picture, the first metaphor is that of citizenship in the kingdom. And then he moves to a different metaphor, that of household, a family. This is a new dimension. It brings us to a a new level. You are not just part of a people, a kingdom. You are also part of a family. And so this is intimate language. You can't be distant from people. You are in a a family, a, a household. And how is this possible? Let's just set the groundwork. He's assuming a lot in saying that you are part of the household of God. Well, you're part of the household of God because of God's love for you. The foundation of our family of our family, our church family, is God's love for us. We are a family not simply because he saved us, but because he has adopted us. That is theological language. We are adopted into God's household. You are his child. He is your good, loving father. So it's one thing to go from stranger and alien to citizen, but another thing altogether to go from stranger and alien from spiritual orphan to adopted child. So all over Facebook, there's been this, this story that's been popping up. It's with pictures of children on National Adoption Day. Kids across our country who are celebrating their adoption, finally after weeks, months, sometimes even years inside the foster care system. Now, I'm not usually one for visual aids, but I actually want to use the visual aid This morning, I think it's appropriate. Here's some of the pictures. I spent 411 days in foster care. Today, November 10th, 2015, I got adopted. Next one. 962 days in foster care, but today, March 15th, 2016, I got adopted. I was in foster care for 924 days, but today I was adopted. Last one. 622 days in foster care. You can't really see, but it says, but no more. Today I was adopted. Today I was adopted. We are told that we were spiritual orphans alienated from God, our creator and true father. And it's because of that that what is nagging at our hearts is the feeling of discontentedness, of aloneness, of lostness, of adriftness. And we are told it is because we do not have true connection with our true father. And then Christ came in and he changed all of that. By the work of Christ We have truly been enveloped in the love of God. We have been brought into his very family. We are loved, cared for. We are valued. We get our value from him and from him alone. And knowing this, it really does make you free. I love this thought from B.J. Thompson. He says, knowing your value 
protects you from having to prove it. Knowing your value protects you from having to prove it. You could say it this way. Knowing God's adoptive love for you keeps you from having to prove yourself. Your value is in his love for you. You're in. You are his child. That's the ground, and that's all gloriously true, but that's actually not Paul's point here. Paul's actually talking about something else. We had to say it because you got to build up to this point. Paul's point is that our relationship, that by our relationship with God, we also now have brothers and sisters. We are not single, only children. We come into a household of God. That's really what that word means. Household means family. Paul is saying that you are part of God's family. So you now have brothers and sisters. In Christ, your Christian family is now of paramount concern. And this is not to devalue your immediate family, your blood relatives, but it is to place enormous value and importance on your connection with with your Christian brothers and sisters. Like we said last week, our connection is not race or tax bracket. It's not even coolness. We are siblings bound by love. We are to show each other love. 1 John 4, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. For each other, we are in a sense an extension of God's holy love. Having been enveloped into his rich mercy, having been adopted into Christ, we now live in a world where we love each other with the same love that God showed us. How would your life be different if this were really true? In other words, if you really believed it. Let me just give you a few things. If we really believe this, then we as a family, as the family of God, will actively seek forgiveness and restoration. We will actively seek forgiveness and restoration. So if you're in a non-family setting and you have a falling out with someone, maybe even a friend, your inclination is to what? It's not to say, I want to go make up with them. Usually the inclination is to say, no more. That's enough of that. To cut off ties. They're not family. I don't need to go reconcile with them. But when you're in a family, that's different. I know that there are some families where there's lots of breaks, but you feel it. You know that that bridge that is on fire needs to be put out and you need to to go make restitution with them, to seek reconciliation, to give forgiveness, to be forgiven. That is the same for the church. Family members in the household of God will actively seek reconciliation. Why do you think Jesus laid out the steps in Matthew 18 so clearly? He didn't do that for anything else. He said, you want some steps? Here's some steps. Seek reconciliation with others. That's what a family does. Here's another thing. We will treat others in the church the way they ought to be treated, even if they are not acting in the ways they ought to act. So listen to it again. We will treat others the way they should be treated, even if they are not acting in the ways they should 
act. In other words, we are motivated by the love of God. And if it's motivated by the love of God, then our love for each other will be unconditional. We do not deserve the love of God. We were not behaving as though we ought to. But he died for us anyway. This radical love extends into the communities of faith, into the families of God. Even when our brothers and sisters in Christ are not living the way they ought, even when they sin against us, we are duty-bound to treat them with the same love God showed us. And so we will be patient. We will be kind. We will not gossip about them. We will seek them out. We will take Matthew 18 seriously. We will be ready to forgive. I'm just going to say one more thing, and you have to say it right after this one, right after that previous one. We will hold each other accountable. We will hold each other accountable. Now, this happens in a family. It has to. When you're with your family, you know everything about each other. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's not so good. You just do. You are transparent. You are open. We must be the same way inside of the church. Are you sharing your life? Are you sharing your real life, who you really are with your brothers and sisters? Are you confessing sin? Are you owing up to your weaknesses? Do you give permission for your brothers and sisters in Christ to hold you accountable. Now, on the other hand, are we, as Christians, as brothers and sisters, as a family, are we willing in love to go to a brother who is in sin? While we should never go on legalistic witch hunts, shouldn't our love for each other compel us to gently, lovingly, truthfully, consistently Call out sin when we see it. This is what a family does. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote one of the greatest books on the church called Life Together, he says this starkly. Nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. James says it this way, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. In a family, we protect each other. In a family, we die for each other. Now, I think here's, this is Paul's main point, though. It's when we do this, when we are engaging in this back and forth, when we're giving permission for people to hold us accountable, when we are gently, lovingly, wisely holding each other accountable, that we are reminding each other that we are part of a family of God. We are no longer strangers and aliens. And you know how you know that? Because I'm being held accountable. Because I'm letting these people in my life speak into my life. Unless we are living it out, you might as well be strangers and aliens. I really screwed up with my own family a few years ago. I had just traveled out there. I was tired. I've shared the story before. I raised my voice at the dinner table and I said something truly awful to my sister. And so I calmed down and then I went on the apology tour in the house 
or I apologize to everyone, not just my sister. The one that I was not expecting, the response came from my brother. He's not a Christian. And I came up to him and said, hey, sorry about that. I'm just really tired. And he looked at me and he said, Ryan, we do not do that in this family. And I was floored. He didn't say anything else. I was convicted. And honestly, it was the most loving thing he could have said to me. It hurt. It was painful. But it showed me that he cared for me. I was still in this family. But it was not cool that I did that. And they would not stand for it. Does our love rise to this level? We are the people of God and we are the family of God. And finally, we are the temple of God. We are the temple of God. Verse 19. I'm sorry, verse 20. We are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So this is Paul's final metaphor. He says that the church, the people of God, are also God's temple. They are God's temple. So this harkens back to the, to the physical building, the, the, the temple of God constructed by the Israelites. It was the structure they built to worship, to offer sacrifices. The main purpose, though, was to commune with God, right? This was to be a dwelling place of the Lord. Now, God is omnipresent. He doesn't just exist in the temple. He exists all everywhere at all times. But the temple was the place where he let his glory rest, where he let his glory emanate. And Paul says to Gentiles and to Jews alike, that temple is gone and it has been replaced by you. You are now the temple of God. Not just you personally, but you as the church. You are the dwelling place of the Spirit and out of you is coming the emanating glory of God. And so this is not only wonderful, just in and of itself. It's not only a wonderful benefit to be had, to be filled by God's Spirit. I think we should also say that it is a great calling. Not only do we worship Him, but by our worship, by our lives, by living in accordance with the gospel, we are emanating His glory. We are sharing Him with the world. You might say that our citizenship marks our identity, our membership in the Family, it guides and drives our love. And the construction of God's holy temple, it is us on mission. We are the display of God's glory to the world. Now, it's important as we understand this to say that there's something really important when you are building this thing up. When you're ever creating any sort of structure, any sort of building structure, what do you need most? What's the most important thing? The foundation, right? So it's not surprising that Paul says that we are to be built on something, on something. And the first thing he says is in verse 20, you are to be built on the foundation of, what does it say there? The apostles and the prophets, the apostles and the prophets. Well, the apostles, you know what that means. It was those first men of God called by God. They had a particular revelation from Jesus Christ. They became the first leaders of the church and they wrote the Holy Scripture. And then the second term we're not totally sure about, we think that they were New Testament 
prophets, not Old Testament ones. Either way, these people were bearing witness to God in Christ. They were the foundation because they were teaching, administering. They were helping guide the church. And and so I think that we can actually break this down and we can say that what Paul is really talking about is the Bible, the New Testament scriptures in particular. The church lives, its people are guided by their reliance upon the word of God. And so we are being built on the Bible, even when it disagrees with us, right? Even when we don't really want to follow it. I love this quote from Tim Keller. Unless the Bible is God's word to us, we live without any real moral authority. Right and wrong would then become matters of personal taste or popular opinion. We would not really be able to talk about justice or truth at all, for there is no way to know objective truth. We do not in the church live by our own truth. It's so important. If we did, then there would be no truth. We live by the enduring truth of God's word. It is grounding us. It is centering us. And I'm having harder and harder time holding that up. I'm having more and more conversations with people who love Jesus, but they do not love his word. I need your help. I need your help to uphold the authority of his word to be grounded on it, not to go off of it, but to stay there. To be the temple of God, we must live by his word. Now, that's not the hardest thing that we face. That's not the hardest thing that we face. Something that I, we've, you may have been feeling this whole time and thinking to yourself is that the hardest thing that we face in trying to be the, the citizens, the, the family, the temple of God, the hardest thing we face is each other. Is each other. Paul says one of the main antidotes to your spiritual alienation and homelessness is the church. And yet, so many times, the church does not feel that way to us. For very many people, coming into a church decreases their connection to the Lord. So I don't want to hide away from this truth this morning. I don't want to hide away from the truth that coming to church, especially joining with the church, can be a very difficult thing. I know my church is supposed to be my family, but it doesn't feel that way. I know that the church is supposed to be where I find connection to God and others, but I often get along better with non-Christians. I know that I should find great unity with the body of Christ, but I have been burned so often by people in the church and its leaders. Have you ever said that or felt that? Well, Paul's answer at the very least is not, well, if that's the case, then you can take off. You don't need to be part of the church. I think that you've seen this morning that Paul's antidote, his, his answer to us, we are in spiritual alienation, is the church. And so how do we square this feeling? How do we deal with this hardship? Well, I think the first that we need to see that Paul is saying that we grow as a church, that we grow as a body. Verse 21, it says, We are growing into a holy temple. And then verse 22, it says, you, we are being built together. And so I think very simply, we can say the church is not perfect. It is not complete. 
Far from it. But on the other hand, it is not a crumbling structure. It is not falling apart. It is not perfect, but it is still being built. It is a growing building. It may not have all the walls or the roof, but you can see them coming up. Sometimes the high winds and rains will come into a a church. We will suffer. We will struggle. It will get through the cracks and crevices. But we know that it will not always be this way. So when we face challenges in the church, we need to remain positive, hopeful. What God is building is not finished yet. But here's the most important thing. And here's what will transform our church if we let it. We must be built in accordance with the cornerstone. That's the second part of the foundation he talks about. A cornerstone is needed. In ancient buildings, the cornerstone was so important and so vital. It was sometimes this huge piece of stone that would not just ground a structure and keep it from falling over, but it would actually guide the builders in the process of, of their building. They would set that first. It was vital. It was crucial. It brought everything together and it enabled the growth. The stronger that cornerstone, the greater the building could be. And I think that is so important because Paul is calling us here to an intimacy, to a connectedness that we have not truly reached yet. I don't know if you noticed this, but in Paul's metaphors, he's been upping the ante. He's been increasing them, the intensity of them. He starts with people in the kingdom of God, right? Okay, that makes sense. A little more intimate. He says that you are now part of the family of God. And his last metaphor is the most intimate. You are stones built together, one on top of each other, wedged tightly, that you may be built strong and tall. And the only way this will be possible is if we are aligned, if we fit together. This is Christian life at its deepest and most profound. When we are aligned with the cornerstone, when it is shaping us, building us, keeping us, that cornerstone, of course, is Jesus Christ. He is the anchor. He is the guide. It is in Jesus that the church grows and finds its unity. Where Christ is central, unity and growth will be sure to follow. When Christ is our King, our love, our life, when we are aligning ourselves with Him as our example and Savior, as our treasure, then we will be shaped by Him. And when millions of people, when a hundred people are shaped by this one treasure, then they can be aligned together as stones. It is when we fit together as the temple of God, as the temple of the Holy Lord emanating his glory, that we finally feel like we are home. No longer aliens, no longer strangers, solid, strong, secure, built, tough. And it is when this happens that we see him and know him and experience him. It's through the church. It's when we are this temple and we are built together like this that we are living on mission with a radical mission, with intensity, doing amazing things. Brothers and sisters, and I mean that from my heart, may we be the church. May we be the people 
the family, and the temple of God. Let's pray. Oh God, we just thank you. We thank you that you have united us with yourself. We are no longer spiritually alienated from you by the blood of Jesus Christ. He has united us with himself. And now we have connection to you and we are filled with the Spirit. We say thank you. And we know that you're at work. You are at work in the body of Christ. You are at work in our small body here. You are building us up. And I can say, I can say honestly that we have grown. We are not stagnant. We are not crumbling. We are a body that is being built up. We are doing amazing things. People are coming up against hardship. They're coming out on the other side believing you. We are coming up against amazing hard obstacles with poverty and we are meeting those needs. We are struggling to be joined together in you by your grace and your mercy. You are overcoming those things by grace and love and you are saving us. You are bringing us together. But the work is not done. The work is not done. We are still being built. We are still growing. And so would you help us. God, this church here, this church, Grace Point Community Church, is going to look a lot different in five years, in 20 years, in 100 years. But my prayer is that long past we are here, it is still here, and it is growing and growing and growing. That it is your beacon of light. That it is your emanating place of glory. That the people in 100 years would be living for you in a hard and weary land. That is what this world needs. To be called back from alienation, to be called back from being a stranger into the household, the community, the temple of God. We pray this with great joy and expectation. And we do so standing on the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. It is in him we have faith, in him we believe. He is our solid rock. Amen.